347, Chapter 25 Welcome to Craplet, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from the shores of the Potomac in Virginia, the Old Dominion. Episode 347, I Can Call You Betty. This episode brought to you by Survival Organs. Handmade organs to throw, love, or cuddle. Some handmade accessories for heart and home. And Knit Circus, the e-newsletter delivered to your mailbox, bringing you three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can find out more at www.knitcircus.com. And March Hare Yarns, hand-dyed yarn, just for you. You can visit the March Hare at Etsy. And Pennywise Consulting, technology solutions for your small business. Links to all of our sponsors' pages can be found in the show notes at craftlit.com. Remember, their support for the show is what keeps it free for you. So go take a look. Well, hello. I hope you have had a fabulous week. I have had a fabulous week, and it is almost entirely due to Craftlit listeners. I had such a great time at the Yarn Cloud last weekend doing the cognitive anchoring talky thing and meeting some really fantastic and very long-time listeners, and it was such a joy. It was really, really marvelous. And thank you also to those of you who have written and put comments in the show notes about my son's back. We've had a variety of possibilities, and some of them I've kind of, you know, kind of checked into on my own that seemed more physiological than anything else. But one of them seems to be correct. And that is that the boy may have asthma or he may have coughed himself into a position where he actually strained a muscle in his back, which would make perfect sense because the boy tends to curl up into odd positions. And I know that a couple of weeks ago, he was having either a massive allergy attack when we first moved into this crazy place. Or he was actually having his first asthma attack. I'm now not sure which, and I do have a pulmonologist I can take him to, but it would make sense that it was one side because he was in some weird positions when I came in to check on him and because it still hurts when he coughs. And he hasn't been coughing that often, so we haven't seen that connection until I mentioned it to him yesterday. And he looked at me and said, oh, well, that makes sense. And, you know, if the diagnosis can make sense to a 10-year-old who is very persnickety and likes to be right and disagree with everything, then I think I think we have a score. So I'll be taking him to the doctor and uh, and checking in on his his lungs. And that doesn't discount the other suggestions that came in. And thank you to Oh shoot, now I can't remember who it was. To the listener who who wrote in and said, you know, double check with him and make sure there's no bullying going on. Because smart bullies, of course, uh, hit where the bruises won't show. Um, as do abusive parents. I have seen this with children before, that the uh, the best abusers, and I'm saying that deeply ironically and with great scorn and anger, are the ones who hit above where the sleeve ends and below where the neckline begins. 
So I did check into that and he is fine and actually has had one of the best weeks ever. And you may be wondering why I named this podcast, I Can Call You Betty. And that is because yesterday, for reasons that are unlikely to become clear ever, I looked something up on YouTube for some of the curriculum that I'm, I'm working on right now. And one of the YouTube videos that showed up in the margin of the, the search window was the original video with Paul Simon and Chevy Chase, the original video for You Can Call Me Al, which, if you are of a certain age, is now an earworm for you. You're welcome. I, I have not been able to get this song out of my head. For those of you who are younger, you may not know this fantastic Paul Simon album. So, so I'm, I watched the video. Of course I do, because now all I had to do was see the picture and the title of the song and I had to watch the video. So I watched the video and I thought, my gosh, this song really holds up. It's just a fun, boppy, interesting song, musically interesting song. So that led to Under African Skies, which led to Graceland, which led to, you know, so I have linked to the video in the show notes for episode 347. Those of you who are youngsters, go take a look at this video. It's grainy because it's the uh, standard definition version. They're not going to upload a high def version, but the music's great. But that is neither here nor there because we have a giveaway to announce. So our winner of the Mommy and Me Crochet book was Lorna from Suffolk, England. So yay, congratulations. And this month, the month of June 2014, we have a new giveaway. This is a weaving book and it's Weaving Rag Rugs. This book is uh, put up by the same company that did the Mommy and Me Crochet. It's lovely. It's one of the, the large paperbacks written by Tom Nisley, who is a heavyweight in the weaving world. He does this great job. It reminds me a little bit of Richard Rutt's book. It's not, it's not that huge a compendium, but he does such a nice job of the history of rag rug making. And then he goes into how to choose your fabric and how to prepare the rags for weaving. And then all of the instructions one might need for warping the loom and then patterns for the rag rugs. And I mean, there's like 30 patterns for the rugs. You do need to know how to read a weaving chart that shows you the tie up for the heddles. And it also shows you the pattern for the warp and weft. And I actually linked to a site that explains how to read a chart like that from my little review of the book on Mama O Knits. So I'll link out to that so that you can take a look at the review if you're interested. And there's some pictures in that review of some of the patterns in the book and they're gorgeous. And if you're, if you are like me, someone who grew up seeing rag rugs in maybe the laundry room, maybe the kitchen, if it was a particularly nice one, but they were kind of, you know, flimsy and kind of, eh. wow, these are not those rugs. He talks about those rugs and the history of those rugs and where they came from and why and when and all that. But his patterns are uh, some of them actually even remind me of quilts, the way he does color gradation and, and things like that with a couple of them. They're just lovely. So if you have a loom and you haven't really figured out what you want to make, this might not be such a bad idea to look into this book. And if you have a rigid heddle loom, I would look at this not so much as a gateway book as a 
when you get your next loom book. There are a couple of patterns that you could do on a, a two-heddle loom, like a rigid heddle, but I, I don't think a rigid heddle would really lend itself all that well to the rag part in general, because the rags, you have to really beat the rags down to make it tight and thick and rug-like. But that also means that aside from the force that's required to do that, it takes up a lot of real estate. And rigid heddle looms don't have all that much real estate. So that is my two cents. But if you are a weaver or a want-to-be weaver, take a look at the book. And if you have weaving friends, please send them to the giveaway so that they can enter to perhaps win, which would be very cool. Nanette's Books. I've mentioned these a couple times and I wanted to let you know that before the end of June, we will have an event. Vanessa, Vanessa of Survival Organs and I are cooking up some fun way to raffle off these books, which reminds me, I don't know if those of you who are not knitters understand that you can join Ravelry for free and go into the Craftlet group because there's a lot of conversation that happens over on Ravelry and you don't have to be a knitter. Aaron Ziegler is a member of our group and so is his producer Shannon, who is also our Defarge artist for the Defarge Does Shakespeare book. So you don't have to be a knitter to participate, but the people over on the Craftlet group at Ravelry are wonderful, very, very smart, very, and very chatty. There's a lot of conversation that goes in over there. I have not been able to tune in for months because I've been working on this massive education writing project that I was telling you about, the Common Core Aligned Project. And just as a public service announcement, I'm going to link out to two different things from the show notes. If you are an educator or a parent who is concerned about Common Core stuff. The first thing I'm going to link to is an NPR story that aired yesterday about a Common Core textbooks, textbook companies that were putting out quote unquote Common Core aligned books, like within two months of the Common Core standards being released. Number one, anyone who has worked in publishing knows that that can't happen. For one thing, the Common Core standards weren't released early to the textbook companies. And the second thing is, I'm sorry, you just can't write that fast. Ask me how I know. So there's there's that element to it that really made me angry because my kids aren't in schools that rely on textbooks. So I didn't see this happen. But I even said to my husband, can't school districts sue? I mean, I, those that's false advertising. That's just so not right. And he's like, no, because, you know, there's a lot of leeway in the word aligned. It is a term of art and it would be impossible to prove. So that really ticked me off. But the second thing was I'm going to link out to a, a manifesto written by a mother in Florida. She's an educator. Her husband is an educator. They have had great educational experiences with their older children. They have four kids, but the younger two are in schools that have, as far as I can tell, lost their collective minds. And, and it seems that part of what happened was the district, instead of, oh, I don't know, reading the standards, decided to listen to a textbook company. And the textbook company, which claimed to be aligned to the Common Core standards and all that, also prepared tests. And so now these kids 
are being tested to within an inch of their life. I think it's actually something, it was something like 12 days, 17 days total out of the school year that was being devoted to testing and long testing. And this stuff has been written so fast, there's no validity. If you can't demonstrate your test's validity, then don't give the test. And her story is just, I'm, it's such a train wreck. And the reason why I'm bringing it up is this. There is zero, and I mean zero, that has anything to do with the Common Core State Standards. The standards do not prescribe curriculum. They do not tell you what your content should be. What they do make, I think, pretty clear is that teachers and students should be reading more primary source documents. By the time the kids go to college, they can do something other than just make a text to self-connection. Because truly, how many of us need a teacher to help us make a text to self-connection? We, we do the hard books on Craftlet because the hard books are hard. And it just absolutely drives me batty watching all of this stuff get ascribed to the common court. Now, this mother in Florida does not do that. She is pretty darn clear that it's her district's implementation that's the problem. And it's so sad. So the reason why I'm putting this up as a public service announcement is this. The standards build nicely. If you are unlucky enough to be in a district that has lost its mind or that is enthralled to a textbook company, you have, I think, a little bit of ground to stand on for arguing because trying to stop the standards is probably not going to happen. However, the implementation can change. And that is where I think parents can make very powerful arguments by simply quoting from the actual standards. So anyway, I would be happy to help you locate information within the standards if you need help to uh, back up an argument with a district or a school or teachers who are telling you that what they're doing is Common Core aligned. But if it seems fishy to you, you fabulous Craftlet smart people, it's probably fishy. It's very disappointing to me hearing all the horror stories because it, sim it simply should not be happening. It has nothing to do with the Common Core, but it has everything to do with districts that are enthralled to textbook companies or testing companies or whatever. And that I think would be a very valuable thing to fight against because I don't think we need that many tests for our kids. Okay, end of soapbox. So I had a great time at Yarn Cloud. I will be speaking at Uniquities. I'm going to just be doing the talk once because it's kind of exhausting. And it'll be kind of late in the morning, I think like 1030 to noon-ish. That will be happening in Vienna, Virginia. If you have friends in the area and you want to send them on, please come with them. The implications for cognitive anchoring go far outside of just what is good for knitters and crocheters and doodlers. Um, we had a lot of really interesting discussions after the talk in, uh, at the yarn cloud with, uh, with Robin Becker. And she, boy, she did a lovely job of orchestrating the whole thing. It was just so nice. It was so nice. It was so much fun. And, uh, and I brought the finished objects that I have from the Defarge book. So that was fun too. But along with the regular cognitive anchoring talk, there's been a bunch of new research that's just been released. 
And our listener, Toshi Down Under, in the land down under, she just sent me a gazillion links to some very interesting knitting stuff that happened in the New Zealand parliament. So I will be uh, incorporating all of that into the talk at Uniquities. Uh, it, it takes a while to kind of read and understand all the new studies and then incorporate them into, into the slides. So that is pretty exciting stuff. I love being able to add new research because so much is happening. And it means people are taking this stuff seriously, and that makes me very happy too. Let's see. Bleak House. Bleak House, for those of you who are subscribers, we have, I think, 14 chapters left to go now, which will put us into ending sometime around September, October of this year, 2014. However, we have done so much of this book that I now have four complete bundles out of five up in the shop. That's about 45 hours worth of audio. So if you have been thinking about listening to Bleak House, but you haven't committed to being a subscriber and you aren't sure, we now have the first four bundles up for sale in the shop, and I have linked out to that as well. And now that that big education gig is done, I can finally devote some time to getting Dracula compiled and put into the shop as an audiobook as well. Which, you know, I've only been saying I was going to get done for the last six months. It's been, it's been hard. There has been a lot going on. The other thing that I will now commence working on again is the grounded audiobook. I don't know. I don't even know if I announced it. It was so distressing. My computer died the day we left on winter holiday. And that meant that when we came back on the first of this year, I had to replace it. My most recent backup did not have 17 hours worth of grounded audio, which killed me. So I'm, I'm going to have to re-record everything, which is fine, but it also means that because I'm now in a new space, I'm going to have to go back to the beginning to re-record everything or the audio won't line up because the sound quality in this place is different than the sound quality was in our previous location. So I'm on it. It's, it's just going to take a while. And, and this place is not the quietest place. I have to, okay, I left that in. Could you hear the door slam in the background? That was downstairs <laughs> and my door is closed. I have to remove a lot of extraneous sound and start and stop recording a lot. Luckily, the leaf blowers aren't going today. So that's nice. So yes, for those of you who are interested and who have been asking, it is happening finally. And we will have a little bit more Larry at the end of today's episode. But now we need to get on with our book. So I got a fantastic comment on the show notes from, I actually don't know if it's pronounced Anya or Ania. I am not positive at all please correct me. But she left this fantastic and very, very useful comment. She said, hi, Heather, I'm an American who moved to England when I was 20 and I lived there for 13 years. I lived in the town of Brighton, 60 miles south of London on the South Coast. When I first got there and heard English people talking about wanting to get, quote, pebbles from the beach in Brighton to put in their gardens, I was surprised. 
To me, the rocks that make up the beach at Brighton were not pebbles, but rocks the size of my fist. So in response to your query about Margaret being hit on the head by a pebble, I think the British understanding of pebble is perhaps broader than the American one and encompasses larger sized stones. Very useful information. And boy, yeah, denotation and connotation, people. There we go. So, chapter 25. There's a lot going on in chapter 25 that I want to prep you for. The first thing is that her opening, Elizabeth Gaskell's opening poem selection, is from Lord Byron. And it's from a Lord Byron poem I didn't know existed. It's from a poem called The Island, which he wrote in 1823. And it's his poem about the mutiny on the bounty. Now, if we think about mutiny on the bounty, then we think of mutiny, then we think of, ooh, Frederick. And that's correct because this chapter, chapter 25, is actually called Frederick. But before we can get to discussing Frederick, we need to find out how Margaret's going to be reacting to Mr. Thornton. Because last time we saw them, uh, she was kind of distraught, and he had tears in his eyes when he left. And that is pretty, as you might imagine, significant. So we get to watch Margaret spiral out of control in her own brain for a little while at the beginning of, of this chapter. And then she, when she tries to go away, mentally go away and not think about this anymore, Elizabeth Gaskell has her quote, and, and it's not just a straight quote, it's kind of twisting a quote, from Edward Fairfax back in 1600. He translated Tasso's Jerusalem Liberata. The original line was her sweet idea wandered through his thought. But because of Margaret's situation with Thornton, instead of her sweet idea wandered, you know, that this, this image of her wandered through his thoughts, it is now her thinking about Thornton. And so the, the quote has been morphed into uh, a female's version of it. So that's kind of cool. And as happened with Jane Eyre, there is a line of French in here. The French literally means do what you should do, come what may. So do it whether it's going to turn out well or not. That is the French that you will hear. And there's also some of the Northern England slang in this chapter that we'll hear. Knob sticks to remind you are scabs. Those are strike breakers. Those are people who cross, cross the strike lines in order to work. Physic powder, which is not Northern English slang. Physic powder would have been medicine, medicine that came in powdered form. And I, I wanted to find out more about this because there's a throwaway that you put the powder into jelly in order to make, make it go down better. Because a, a lot of those medicines were compounded. They were ground up in a mortar and a pestle and they were not particularly good tasting. I remember as a child, my grandmother would crush up pills. I have no idea what it was that I was taking. I assume it was aspirin or something like that. And she would put it in a teaspoon of honey. And so the powder was coated with the honey and it didn't taste bad anymore. However, Bessie's point about physic powder in jelly is that the, the jelly may be the largest part of what you're taking, but the powder is so bitter and potent that it still overwhelms the flavor of the jelly 
well, this made me start thinking about, well, jellies and medicines and things like that. And I found out a bunch of really interesting pages on Victorian medicine. So I'm just throwing them all in the show notes because you, you may be interested too. And that led me to jellies and how to make jellies without powdered gelatin and then Victorian era makeup. So I have a lot of really random links that you might be interested in following. They're just kind of fun, but they're all, they're all there on the show notes for 347. Some more slang is, uh, that will never go peach, which means you'll never go inform on. You'll never peach that guy. And the thee and the thou show up here, which does two things. It lets us know that Bessie is at least a little old fashioned because already the thee and the thou were being leached out of everyday usage of English. It was still in the King James Bible, but you didn't hear it on the street quite as much. It used to be that thee and thou were the more familiar form of you, and you was the more formal. But over time, it morphed, and the thee and thou got dropped, and you just became the general way to refer to someone other than yourself. So that's going to pop up a bit in Bessie's speech. And again, the word clem is starving. So a clemmed person would be a person who is, in fact, starving. Purring, P-U-R-R-I-N-G, is slang for kicking, like in a fight situation. And that is all for the tricky bits. So now we're going to listen to chapter 25 of North and South by Elizabeth Gaskell. Chapter 25 Frederick Revenge may have her own. Rouse discipline aloud proclaims their cause, and injured navies urge their broken laws. Byron Margaret began to wonder whether all offers were as unexpected beforehand as distressing at the time of their occurrence as the two she had had. An involuntary comparison between Mr. Lennox and Mr. Thornton arose in her mind. She had been sorry that an expression of any other feeling than friendship had been lured out by circumstances from Henry Lennox. That regret was the predominant feeling on the first occasion of her receiving a proposal. She had not felt so stunned, so impressed as she did now, when echoes of Mr. Thornton's voice yet lingered about the room. In Lennox's case, he seemed for a moment to have slid over the boundary between friendship and love, and the instant afterwards to regret it nearly as much as she did, although for different reasons. In Mr. Thornton's case, as far as Margaret knew, there was no intervening stage of friendship. Their intercourse had been one continued series of opposition. Their opinions clashed, and indeed she had never perceived that he had cared for her opinions as belonging to her, the individual. As far as they defied his rock-like power of character, his passion strength, he seemed to throw them off from him with contempt, until she felt the weariness of the exertion of making useless protests. And now he had come in this strange, wild, passionate way to make known his love? For, although 
At first it had struck her that his offer was forced and goaded out of him by sharp compassion for the exposure she had made of herself, which he, like others, might misunderstand. Yet, even before he left the room, and certainly not five minutes after, the clear conviction dawned upon her, shined bright upon her, that he did love her, that he had loved her, that he would love her. And she shrank and shuddered as under the fascination of some great power, repugnant to her whole previous life. She crept away and hid from his idea. But it was of no use. To parody a line out of Fairfax's Tasso, his strong idea wandered through her thought. She disliked him the more for having mastered her inner will. How dared he say that he would love her still, even though she shook him off with contempt? She wished she had spoken more stronger. Sharp, decisive speeches came thronging into her mind, now that it was too late to utter them. The deep impression made by the interview was like that of a horror in a dream that will not leave the room although we waken up and rub our eyes and force a stiff, rigid smile upon our lips. It is there, there, cowering and gibbering with fixed ghastly eyes in some corner of the chamber, listening to hear whether we dare to breathe of its presence to anyone. And we dare not, poor cowards that we are. And so she shuddered away from the threat of his enduring love. What did he mean? Had she not the power to daunt him? She would see. It was more daring than became a man to threaten her so. Did he ground it upon the miserable yesterday? If need were, she would do the same tomorrow, by a crippled beggar, willingly and gladly. But by him, she would do it just as bravely, in spite of his deductions and the cold slime of women's impertinence. She did it because it was right and simple and true to save where she could save, even to try to save. Fais ce que doit, advienne que pourra. Hitherto she had not stirred from where he had left her. No outward circumstances had roused her out of the trance of thought in which she had been plunged by his last words and by the look of his deep, intent, passionate eyes as their flames had made her own fall before them. She went to the window and threw it open to dispel the oppression which hung around her. Then she went and opened the door with a sort of impetuous wish to shake off the recollection of the past hour in the company of others or in active exertion. But all was profoundly hushed in the noonday stillness of a house where an invalid catches the unrefreshing sleep that is denied to the night hours. Margaret would not be alone. What should she do? Go and see Bessie Higgins, of course, thought she, as the recollection of the message sent the night before flashed into her mind. And away she went. When she got there, she found Bessie lying on the settle, moved close to the fire, though the day was sultry and oppressive. She was laid down quite flat, as if resting languidly after some paroxysm of pain. 
Margaret felt sure she ought to have the greater freedom of breathing which a more sitting posture would procure, and, without a word, she raised her up and so arranged the pillows that Bessie was more at ease, though very languid. I thought I should not have seen you again, said she at last, looking wistfully in Margaret's face. I'm afraid you're much worse, but I could not have come yesterday. My mother was so ill. For many reasons, said Margaret, coloring. You'd may happen think I went beyond my place in sending Mary for you, but the wrangling and the loud voices had just torn me to pieces, and I thought when father left, oh, if I could just hear a voice reading me some words of peace and promise, I could die away into the silence and rest of God, just as a baby is hushed up to sleep by its mother's lullaby. Shall I read you a chapter now? I do. Mayhap and I shan't listen to the sense at first. It will seem far away, but when you come to words I like, to the comfort in texts, it'll seem close in my ear and going through me as it were. Margaret began. Bessie tossed to and fro. If by an effort she attended for one moment, it seemed as though she were convulsed into double restlessness the next. At last, she burst out, Don't go on reading. It's no use. I'm blaspheming all the time in my mind with thinking angrily on what cannot be helped. You'd hear of the riot may happen yesterday at Marble Mills, Thornton's factory, you know. Your father was not there, was he? said Margaret, coloring deep. Nor he, he'd a given his right hand if it had never come to pass. It's that that's frightened me. He's fairly knocked down in his mind by it. It's no use telling him fools will always break out of bounds. You never saw a man so downhearted as he is. But why? asked Margaret. I don't understand. Ah, well, you see. He's a committee man on this special strike. The union appointed him because, though I say it as I shouldn't say it, he's reckoned a deep chap and true to the backbone. And he and the other committee men laid the plans. They were to hold together through thick and thin what the major part thought the others were to think, whether they would or no. And above all, there was to be no going again the law of the land. Folk would go with them if they saw them striving and starving with dumb patience. But if there was once any noise of fighting and struggling, even with knobsticks, all was up as they knew by the experience of many and many a time before. They would try and get speech or the knobsticks and coax them and reason with them, and mayhap and warn them off. But whatever came, the committee charged all members of the union to lie down and die, if need were, without striking a blow. And then they reckoned they were sure of carrying the public with them. And beside all that, committee knew they were right in their demand, and they didn't want to have right all mixed up with wrong till folk can't separate it. No more nor I can the physic powder from the jelly you gave me to mix it in. 
jelly is much the biggest, but powder tastes it all through. Well, I've told you at length about this, and, but I'm tired out. You just think for yourself what it mun be for father to have his work undone, and by such a fool as Boucher, who must needs go right again the orders of committee and ruin the strike just as bad as if he meant to be a Judas. Eh, but father gave did him last night. He went so far as to say he'd go and tell police where they might find the ringleader or the riot. He'd give him up to the mill owners to do what they would with him. He'd show the world that the real leaders of the strike were not such as Boucher, but steady, thoughtful men, good hands and good citizens, who were friendly to law and judgment, and would uphold order, who only wanted their right wage and wouldn't work, even though they starved till they got em, but who would never injure property or life, for, dropping her voice, they do say that Boucher threw a stone at Thornton's sister that Welly killed her. That's not true, said Margaret. It was not Boucher that threw the stone. She went first red, then white. You'd be there then, were you? asked Bessie languidly, for indeed she had spoken with many pauses, as if speech was unusually difficult to her. Yes. Never mind, go on, only it was not Boucher that threw the stone. But what did he answer to your father? He did not speak words. You were all in such a tremble with spent passion. I could not bear to look at him. I heard his breath coming quick, and at one time I thought he were sobbing. But when father said he'd give him up to the police, he gave a great cry and struck father on the face with his closed fist and be off like lightning. Father were stunned with the blow at first, for all Boucher were weak with passion and with clemming. He sat down a bit, put his hand afore his eyes, and then made for the door. I don't know where I got strength, but I threw myself off the settle and clung to him. Father. Father, said I, thou'll never go peach on that poor clemmed man. I'll never leave go on thee till thou sayest thou won it. Do not be a fool, says he. Words come readier than deeds to most men. I never thought of telling the police on him, though by God he deserves it, and I should not have minded if someone else had done the dirty work and got him clapped up. But now he has strucken me. I could do it less nor ever or it would be getting other men to take up my quarrel. But if ever he gets well over this clemming and is in good condition, he and I'll have an up-and-down fight, purrin' and all, and I'll see what I can do for him. And so father shook me off, for indeed I was low and faint enough, and his face was all clay-white, where it weren't bloody, and turned me sick to look at. And I know not if I slept or waked or in a dead swoon till Mary came in and I told her to fetch you to me. And now, do not talk to me, but just read out the chapter. I'm easier in my mind for having spit it out, but 
I want some thoughts of the world that's far away to take the weary taste of it out of my mouth. Read me not a sermon chapter, but a story chapter. They've pictures in them which I see when my eyes are shut. Read about the new heavens and the new earth, and mayhap and I'll forget this. Margaret read in her soft, low voice. Though Bessie's eyes were shut, she was listening for some time, for the moisture of tears gathered heavy on her eyelashes. At last she slept, with many starts and muttered pleadings. Margaret covered her up and left her, for she had an uneasy consciousness that she might be wanted at home. And yet, until now, it seemed cruel to leave the dying girl. Mrs. Hale was in the drawing-room on her daughter's return. It was one of her better days, and she was full of praises of the waterbed. It had been more like the beds at Sir John Beresford's than anything she had slept on since. She did not know how it was, but people seemed to have lost the art of making the same kind of beds as they used to do in her youth. One would think it was easy enough, there was the same kind of feathers to be had, and yet, somehow, till this last night, she did not know when she had had a good sound resting sleep. Mr. Hale suggested that something of the merits of the feather beds of former days might be attributed to the activity of youth, which gave a relish to rest. But this idea was not kindly received by his wife. No, indeed, Mr. Hale. It was those beds at Sir John's. Now, Margaret, you're young enough and go about in the day. Are the beds comfortable? I appeal to you. Do they give you a feeling of perfect repose when you lie down upon them? Or rather, don't you toss about and try in vain to find an easy position and waken in the morning as tired as when you went to bed? Margaret laughed. To tell the truth, Mamma, I've never thought about my bed at all, what kind it is. I'm so sleepy at night that if I only lie down anywhere, I nap off directly. So, I don't think I am a competent witness. But then, you know, I never had the opportunity of trying Sir John Beresford's beds. I never was at Oxenham. Were not you? Oh, no, to be sure. It was poor darling Fred I took with me. I remember. I only went to Oxenham once after I was married, to your Aunt Shaw's wedding, and poor little Fred was the baby then. And I know Dixon did not like changing from lady's maid to nurse, and I was afraid that if I took her near her old home and amongst her own people, she might want to leave me. But poor baby was taken ill at Oxenham with his teething, and what with my being a great deal with Anna just before her marriage and not being very strong myself, Dixon had more of the charge of him than she ever had before, and it made her so fond of him, and she was so proud when he would turn away from everyone and cling to her that I don't believe she ever thought of leaving me again, though it was very different from what she'd been accustomed to. Poor Fred, 
Everybody loved him. He was born with the gift of winning hearts. It makes me think very badly of Captain Reed when I know that he disliked my own dear boy. I think it a certain proof he had a bad heart. Ah, your poor father, Margaret. He has left the room. He can't bear to hear Fred spoken of. I love to hear about him, Mamma. Tell me all you like. You never can tell me too much. Tell me what he was like as a baby. Why, Margaret, you must not be hurt. But he was much prettier than you. I remember when I first saw you in Dixon's arms, I said, Dear, what an ugly little thing. And she said, It's not every child that's like Master Fred, bless him. Dear, how well I remember it. Then I could have had Fred in my arms every minute of the day, and his cot was close by my bed, and now, now, Margaret, I don't know where my boy is, and sometimes I think I shall never see him again. Margaret sat down by her mother's sofa on a little stool and softly took hold of her hand, caressing it and kissing it as if to comfort. Mrs. Hale cried without restraint. At last, she sat straight, stiff up on the sofa, and turning round to her daughter, she said with tearful, almost solemn earnestness, Margaret, if I can get better, if God lets me have a chance of recovery, it must be through seeing my son Frederick once more. It will waken up all the poor springs of health left in me. She paused and seemed to try and gather strength for something more yet to be said. Her voice was choked as she went on, was quavering as with the contemplation of some strange yet closely present idea. And Margaret, if I am to die, if I am one of those appointed to die before many weeks are over, I must see my child first. I cannot think how it must be managed, but I charge you, Margaret, as you yourself hope for comfort in your last illness. Bring him to me that I may bless him. Only for five minutes, Margaret. There could be no danger in five minutes. Oh, Margaret, let me see him before I die. Margaret did not think of anything that might be utterly unreasonable in this speech. We do not look for reason or logic in the passionate entreaties of those who are sick unto death. We are stung with the recollection of a thousand slighted opportunities of fulfilling the wishes of those who will soon pass away from among us. And do they ask us for the future happiness of our lives, we lay it at their feet and will it away from us. But this wish of Mrs. Hale's was so natural, so just, so right to both parties, that Margaret felt as if, on Frederick's account as well as on her mother's, she ought to overlook all intermediate chances of danger and pledge herself to do everything in her power for its realization. The large, pleading, dilated eyes were fixed upon her wistfully, steady in their gaze, though the poor white lips quivered like those of a child. Margaret gently rose up and stood opposite to her frail mother, so that she might gather the secure fulfillment of her wish from the calm steadiness of her daughter's face. Mama, 
I will write tonight and tell Frederick what you say. I am as sure that he will come directly to us as I am sure of my life. Be easy, Mama. You shall see him as far as anything earthly can be promised. You will write tonight? Oh, Margaret, the post goes out at five. You will write by it, won't you? I have so few hours left. I feel, dear, as if I should not recover, though sometimes your father over-persuades me into hoping. You will write directly, won't you? Don't lose a single post, for just by that very post I may miss him. But, Mama, Papa is out. Papa is out? And what then? Do you mean that he would deny me this last wish, Margaret? Why, I should not be ill, be dying, if he had not taken me away from Helston to this unhealthy, smoky, sunless place. Oh, Mama, said Margaret. Yes, it is so indeed. He knows it himself. He has said so many a time. He would do anything for me. You don't mean he would refuse me this last wish, prayer, if you will. And indeed, Margaret, the longing to see Frederick stands between me and God. I cannot pray till I have this one thing. Indeed, I cannot. Don't lose time, dear, dear Margaret. Write by this very next post. Then he may be here, here in twenty-two days, for he is sure to come. No cords or chains can keep him. In twenty-two days I shall see my boy. She fell back, and for a short time she took no notice of the fact that Margaret sat motionless, her hand shading her eyes. You are not writing, said her mother at last. Bring me some pens and paper. I will try and write myself. She sat up, trembling all over with feverish eagerness. Margaret took her hand down and looked at her mother sadly. Only wait till Papa comes in. Let us ask him how best to do it. You promised, Margaret, not a quarter of an hour ago. You said he should come. And so he shall, Mama. Don't cry, my own dear mother. I'll write here now. You shall see me write, and it shall go by this very post. And if Papa thinks fit, he can write again when he comes in. It is only a day's delay. Oh, Mama, don't cry so pitifully. It cuts me to the heart. Mrs. Hale could not stop her tears. They came hysterically, and, in truth, she made no effort to control them, but rather called up all the pictures of the happy past and the probable future, painting the scene when she should lie a corpse, with the son she had longed to see in life weeping over her, and she unconscious of his presence, till she was melted by self-pity into a state of sobbing and exhaustion that made Margaret's heart ache. But at last she was calm, and greedily watched her daughter as she began her letter, wrote it with swift, urgent entreaty, sealed it up hurriedly for fear her mother should ask to see it, and then, to make security most sure, at Mrs. Hale's own bidding, took it herself to the post office. She was coming home when her father overtook her. 
And where have you been, my pretty maid? asked he. To the post office, with a letter, a letter to Frederick. Oh, Papa, perhaps I have done wrong, but Mamma was seized with such a passionate yearning to see him. She said it would make her well again, and then she said that she must see him before she died. I cannot tell you how urgent she was. Did I do wrong? Mr. Hale did not reply at first. Then he said, You should have waited till I came in, Margaret. I tried to persuade her. And then she was silent. I don't know, said Mr. Hale after a pause. She ought to see him if she wishes it so much, for I believe it would do her much more good than all the doctor's medicine, and perhaps set her up altogether, but the danger to him, I'm afraid, is very great. All these years since the mutiny, Papa? Yes, it is necessary, of course, for government to take very stringent measures for the repression of offences against authority, more particularly in the Navy where a commanding officer needs to be surrounded in his men's eyes with a vivid consciousness of all the power there is at home to back him and take up his cause and avenge any injuries offered to him if need be. Ah, it's no matter to them how far their authorities have tyrannized, galled hasty tempers to madness, or, if that can be any excuse afterwards, it is never allowed for in the first instance. They spare no expense. They send out ships, they scour the seas to lay hold of the offenders. The lapse of years does not wash out the memory of the offense. It is a fresh and vivid crime on the admiralty books till it is blotted out by blood. Oh, Papa, what have I done? And yet, it seemed so right at the time. I'm sure Frederick himself would run the risk. So he would. So he should. Nay, Margaret, I'm glad it is done, though I durst not have done it myself. I'm thankful it is as it is. I should have hesitated till perhaps it might have been too late to do any good. Dear Margaret, you have done what is right about it, and the end is beyond our control. It was all very well. But her father's account of the relentless manner in which mutinies were punished made Margaret shiver and creep. If she had decoyed her brother home to blot out the memory of his error by his blood, she saw her father's anxiety lay deeper than the source of his latter cheering words. She took his arm and walked home pensively and wearily by his side. Oh dear, Frederick's gonna come back, and it's kind of dangerous for him to do that. So I think this last little scene between Margaret and Mr. Hale, when Margaret has divulged to her father what she and her mother have been up to, and of course Margaret was really more than a little resistant, but her mother was also really more than a little dying last wish-ish. And so she's stuck. 
And, and remember that Margaret's family never really talked to her about what happened with Frederick. She didn't really know what was up or the whole story or anything. So it is very likely that she didn't entirely understand the length of the ire of the British Navy. And, and I think that the way Mr. Hale talks about the problem when he's talking to Margaret in this, this last scene is a fascinating look into Elizabeth Gaskell's brain. This has been referred to as a condition of England book, which was a particular style of book. I think Carlyle came up with this phrase at the, um, the midpoint of the Victorian era, where it was a, a novel, so fiction, that examined some of the social problems, societal problems, political problems that were uh, ascendant at that time in British society. There were plenty of them, but not all of them were as good as North and South. But I think that this is why Gaskell must have taken such enormous pains to give us Higgins on the one side and even Boucher and Thornton on the other side. And then some of the other manufacturers who don't behave quite as well as Thornton does in business. And then here we have Mr. Hale and, and we have Margaret who give us kind of a religious side of things. But then we also have Hale doing this really interesting dance here where at the beginning of his speech to Margaret, he's really defending the Navy. Well, you know, they really have to defend against mutiny and they have to prosecute. And so it's understandable. But then as he starts to remember the personal attachment that he has to this particular story, his son, then he starts to question the lengths to which the Navy will go to uh, preserve its autonomy and strength and, or, or the perception of its strength. And, and he starts to, in effect, give us the, the other side of the coin, the other side of the story. And that is something that Gaskell does. And I, I personally think she does a remarkable job of really presenting both sides very strongly and, and convincingly for, for almost all of the arguments that she presents at some point in, in the novel, whether they are religious or political or societal or social. Part of the curriculum that I've been working on is actually helping teachers understand how to teach argument writing, where you have a, a claim and you have to have evidence and you have to support your claim. And uh, I, I tend to use the scene from Thank You for Smoking, where uh, the main character is talking to his son about chocolate and vanilla ice cream. And I will put a link to this in the show notes in case you've never seen the scene, because it is marvelous. And it leaves you with kind of an empty hole in your stomach because you think, oh, oh, that's really hmm, not so good. And that kind of seems to be what's happening a lot in politics these days. And oh my goodness, uh, I think we'd better teach our children how to think logically a little more than we have been doing. And so for me, when I'm looking at a moment like this in a fiction text where a character or a pair of characters are presenting two sides of an argument, I'm impressed because conceding to the opposing point of view or accepting that there even is an opposing point of view is not something we tend to see in American politics these days. And 
furthermore, not only to concede to the opposition, but to actually be able to understand and put voice to the cause of the opposition is really, really quite something. And Gaskell's going to continue to do that all the way through this book. Now, this this chapter today was the end of volume one. Yes, there are two volumes. And next week we'll begin volume two. And so we've we've got this a bit of a cliffhanger here because now, oh my goodness, Frederick's going to come back. And that's the end of what was in the serial that Charles Dickens published in Household Words. And they had to wait for the next part of the, the magazine to come out. And to that effect, I have a little more audio of Larry Uffelman, our professor emeritus of Victorian literature, and me speaking by phone uh, a few months ago, actually. And I think I have managed to cut out all of the possible spoilers. But we talk a little bit about Dickens and Gaskell and the difficulties that they had. And then we go into some other parts of the story. And I am going to let that audio play us out once again. Have a great week. I'll talk to you soon. Here's Larry. When Dickens and Gaskell were negotiating for the publication of this book in his weekly periodical, mm-hmm. Gaskell was thinking of the work as the title of the book as either Margaret or Margaret Hale. Mm. She saw it as a story about Margaret, Margaret's development. Uh, Dickens gave it the title North and South because he saw it as a novel about conflict between the manufacturing North and the uh, more aristocratic South. Mm. So that Dickens and Gaskell didn't really seem to agree on the focus of what this novel what this novel would be. Interesting. Gaskell saw it as developing a gradual change in Margaret, whereas Dickens saw it in terms of conflict between classes. Right. And when it was published in his weekly periodical Household Words, uh, Dickens <laughs> Dickens essentially treated Mrs. Gaskell a little shabbily. Um, he he published his novel uh, Hard Times, and she had asked him if he was going to have a strike in that novel, and he said no, he wasn't. Well, then she felt free to put a strike in her novel, but huh. then voila, Hard Times was published, and guess what? There was a strike in it, a strike. and she was really angry. I'll bet. Uh, because uh, she th- she felt betrayed, and then he got angry because he was publishing a weekly which had a relatively few pages, and her stories were too long to fit easily <laughs> into those <laughs> week after week, and he just wanted her finally to finish the bleeding novel and get on get on with the rest <laughs> of her life. <laughs> but. but uh, and and she felt betrayed and badly used, right. and she never published another novel with him. Uh, after that, she published some short stuff, but no no more novels with him because she found that writing for a weekly publication was it was just too much of a pressure cooker, and she didn't she didn't do it well. Um... But basically, the the misunderstanding between them is is what the focus of the story is. Uh, for Dickens, the story it was the economic and cultural division between two parts of the country. And for Gaskell, the novel was about the developing character of Margaret Hale. And you can't have you can't have it both ways. So 
the the reason for the the real blow up between Dickens and and Gaskell during the publication of this novel in periodical form is basic misunderstanding of what the novel was about. Do you know if any of the reviewers suffered the same disconnect between where Gaskell thought she was going with the book and where? No, not so much. And if they if they did, it was a merely a passing comment. It was a source of disagreement between. Gaskell and, and Dickens that lasted for the rest of their lives, really. Well, I'm I'm shocked, of course, simply shocked that Dickens could be unpleasant. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I'm of two minds about about this. On the one hand, he was a great writer and a great editor, yeah. and he brought a lot of writers who otherwise would have had no place to publish into the into the literary mainstream. But he. <laughs> didn't understand that Gaskell didn't work well in weekly serials until it was too late. And by then, the kind of rupture in their relationship was uh, not entirely (laughs) healable, even though she continued to publish shorter things with him. She never again gave him a, a major piece. Was this her first serialized novel, a serialized with with Dickens? Yes, I believe it was. The first serialized novel. She had published other things with him. That's why he wanted her. Right. He wanted her to do a novel. But what he didn't understand, nor did she, was that the, the pressure of weekly publication worked against her own creative impulses. I am I am baffled by people who can do these things. They're, they do them on blogs where they every week is a new chapter of a book. I don't know how Dickens did it. Going through Bleak House right now on the the podcast, I'm absolutely mind blown at what he was able to pull off, especially with that book. Yeah. Do you know what the thinking was behind the what comes across as blankshire when you have a, a blank line and then sure? So instead of Wiltshire, it's in a way when she uses those blank shear and it and it shires and it and it's clear that she's talking about the South. It doesn't mm-hmm. make much difference which one it is. Right. She's talking about an agriculturally oriented part of the country, which is you know uh, where the seat of power is, where the money is, where the, right. the political power is, where the church is, where the you know the Archbishop of Canterbury is located. All, all of that, all the power uh, is in the, is in the South, and the ones on whom the power is exercised in her <laughs> novels are in the North. And yeah. that- it surprised me so much. Well, I find, I actually, I found the, the opening chapters of, of this particular book to be a lot more difficult to, to figure out, framing it as a, as an instructor, as a teacher, to look at this book. And you go, okay, well, other hard books, The Scarlet Letter. The Scarlet Letter, you have a two page opening chapter where Hawthorne lays out all of his symbols. And he just says, here they are. These are the symbols. This is what the tone of the book is going to be. And everything will fit into this nice, neat little symbolic box. And you go, okay, well, as long as you can communicate that to the kids and get them interested in finding out how those symbols work, it's fine. And and Jane Eyre starts with uh, kids fighting, which is always fun. And so that's easy and an easy sell. But this book, you've got Margaret's cousin, who seems to be a bit of a twit. And then the Captain Lennox shows up and he seems to be a little too proud of his little twit. And so they're both kind of disgusting. And then the captain's brother 
engages in this conversation with Margaret where he starts trying to draw her out and get her to talk about Halston. And she keeps stopping him and kind of pushing him away and saying, oh, I can't explain what that's like. Oh, you can't have me explain my home. I can't explain my home. It's just my home. And I thought, what a curious way to start a book. Because your heroine is kind of off-putting and, <laughs> and troublesome, and she's not easy. And then I thought, well, actually, for a modern audience, if I, if I point that out, that might not be such a bad thing. But I thought, I thought it was an interesting way for Gaskell to open the book. It seemed so different to me from even you get Elizabeth Bennett and the first chapter is really about how ridiculous Elizabeth Bennett's mom is and how great her dad is. And so that gives you a kind of a clear paradigm for what the rest of the book is going to be like. But this one I found, it was a very curious opening for me. Now, sometimes I suppose Gaskell's novels can be a little slow going at the, at the beginning. I'm just opening the, the copy of the thing to chapter one to see... The... Edith said Margaret gently, Edith. <laughs> <laughs> but Edith had fallen asleep. She ended up, she was curled up on the sofa in the back drawing room, looking very lovely in her white muslin and blue ribbons. Well, yeah, yeah, I mean, Gaskell is, is setting this up. This is what life is like in, uh -huh. this, in this place. And this is what she's going to turn against. So you, you get at first the, the kind of dull sleepiness of, yes. of where she's coming from. And then you move pretty quickly after that to, to Milton, where she comes into a, a kind of dark house with crappy wallpaper <laughs> and people who don't talk right and <laughs> who are apparently rude. And, and it's loud and, and dirty. And loud and forthright and dirty and the air isn't fit to breathe and yep. the streets aren't clean. and It sets up the contrast yes. that Gaskell is, is going, to, uh, going to make. Like Craftlet? Leave us a review on iTunes, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, repin our pins on Pinterest, or post a link to us when you comment on literary blogs. You can listen via Stitcher Radio, craftlit.com, iTunes, or via the Android, Windows 8, or iOS app. You can also use this free Craftlit app to access premium subscriber content. Craftlit is and has been made possible by the generous support of its listeners. And for that, I am truly grateful. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on. <laughs>